brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Software Up Radio, on time, on target. Does it feel good for me to say that after uh, Ian uh, did it for so long, and now I get to steal his thunder. I'm here with Dennis today, uh, doing a first podcast, Sans Ian. Uh, if you want to get a hold of him, you can dial one nine hundred Scotto. That's S C O T T O. And here we are. And Dennis has got everything all teed up. I think we're going good. We're going to have Greg Walker on the show today. Uh, Greg is a special forces veteran and also one of our writers at NewsRep. And he has written a number of very interesting and important articles um, ranging from soldier suicide to special forces history. Uh, One of the things I'm excited to get into with him today is um, his work on Dave Baez, who was a 7th Special Forces Group soldier who defected and joined the Sandinistas uh, and led a column into Honduras, where he was eventually captured. And uh, Greg got the real story, got the true story of what happened down there and how, how this whole story unfolded. Uh, it was something that I had tried to get to for quite a while, actually, and I just did not have the um, the resources. And, you know, Greg was actually down there, and, you know, worked down in Panama with three seven special forces. He had the access and the know how um, to really get in depth in this story and write it in a way that nobody has previously. Uh, one of the things that I did want to mention was that the story of Dave Baez has been fictionalized. In two novels, this is a, the, the story is almost like entered into like special operations mythology. It's like an urban myth of like things you hear that are half true. Uh, and this part of, parts of the story came out in these novels. Um, one of the novels is called A Mission for Delta, written by L.H. Burris, or he went his uh, call sign or the, the nickname that he was known by in the military was Bucky. Um, and Colonel Burris served in Mike Force in Vietnam, and he wrote a terrific memoir about his time in Vietnam called Mike Force. You should look that up and, and get that book because it's just it's important, and it's one of my top three Vietnam memoirs. I mean, it's just a, a, a terrific and even a beautifully written book um, about you know being a special forces officer in, in Vietnam, and. The the novel that Burris wrote that fictionalizes uh, it fictional uh, the novel fictionalizes a number of different things and and, and kind of um, aggregates them into into a novel uh, in this fictional plotline. But uh, Dave Baez is is kind of 
his story is kind of the fulcrum of the novel. It's about this green beret who went missing in Vietnam. And then he turns up with the communists down in, in Central America and there's fissile material involved and this, and, and that's the fictional aspect of it. Um, but that, that book is called a mission for Delta. Um, and it's a very good book. Um, there's a lot of, I think, hidden history, written into that book. And you can go and read my, my, uh, book review of it on amazon.com. Actually, I wrote like, you know, I don't know, 3000 words about, about this novel. And it's a very, it's a very good novel, very positive novel, but I'm afraid to say that I had a bit of a falling out with the author over that. Um, you know, Colonel Burris, who I have the utmost respect for, um, for his service and for who he is as a man. He was one of the, um, you know, original members of Delta Force. Charlie Beckwith brought him in and he was one of the first squadron commanders and, and eventually became the deputy commander of the unit. I mean, he did, uh, an amazing, uh, service to our country, but, uh, we had a bit of a falling out because, uh, Colonel Burris says that his novel, A Mission for Delta, is purely a work of fiction and nothing else. Um, and I have to respectfully disagree with him on this. I, I think that the novel actually has a, a whole slew of things in there that are based on factual events. Um, the Dave Baez incident happens to be one of them. There are other parts of the novel that reference Detachment A in Berlin, undercover special forces um, operations in Berlin. There are references to uh, green light missions. There are, uh, there are characters in the book that are quite clearly actual people. Uh, so, I mean, there's a character named Ames, Major Ames in the book, which is clearly uh, Colonel Burris. There is a character um, working for the National Security Council in the White House named Rolly, who is obviously Oliver North, Ali. Um, so I, I'm afraid I have to respectfully disagree with Colonel Burris on, on you know, his, his claim that the book is purely fictional. Um, and you know, he had, a uh, got quite angry at me for writing that book review and decoding some of the things in it. Be that as it may, the other novel that fictionalizes Dave Baez is a book called Stiletto, which was written by Greg Walker. And it's about exactly the, the same thing we're talking about here, that the, there's a green beret who defected and he went to the other side and now he's working for the communists. So we will have... Greg on to talk about that and, and a few other um, works that he's done that he's written over the last couple months. And uh, I'm excited to get into that. But Dennis, what else do you got for us? Well, Greg, first off, Greg was passionate via email to come on. So he's going to be excited. I feel like you two, with your history knowledge, and especially when you talk about Baez like this, I feel like you two are just going to hit it off and it's going to, that's going to run rampant. Um, in addition, you tweeted out an article this weekend from the independent written by Robert Fisk. Uh, it was, the article was titled the evidence we were never meant to see about the, what is it? Duma Duma. Yeah. Duma gas attack. And I read the piece. Very interesting stuff. I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Obviously you tweeted about it, so I'm sure you have some um, opinion. Yeah. Well, it, it's about one of what was allegedly one of the big gas attacks in Syria, um, that became the basis for, um, you know, Trump's, uh, cruise missile strikes in Syria. And there is a, um, slew of evidence. I have to be very careful. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I don't want to parse my words, but, it does appear that there was a gas attack, but how, how it was conducted and who, who perpetrated that gas attack 
is not necessarily known. And we were told um, by, you know, UN bodies that there is like unequivocally the regime um, launching these gas attacks. And it does seem pretty clear throughout the war that the regime and the rebels and ISIS and and all of them have used chemical weapons at various points, chlorine gas and, and sarin gas and things like this. Um, but this attack was pinned directly on the regime, and now there's evidence has come out that the UN had um, dissenting opinions about it, that they were not all, the, the inspectors were not all on the same sheet of music, and there were some people who felt that these, uh, these chemical weapons were not dropped from the sky by airplanes, but rather that they were placed on the ground. Uh, <laughs> this, all, this all gets very scary and it's chilling because we launched our invasion of Iraq in 2003 based on the the false premise that there were that Saddam was making all these chemical weapons and then that turned out to be bullshit so and now we're now we're right back there where we're being told that the Iranians are making nuclear weapons then you know the 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 ubiquitous uh, WMD threat and that we need to go, something's got to be done about Iran. Uh, we keep hearing this over and over. So, yeah, I mean, we just have to be super cautious about this. The article was wild. And like you said, the fact that we're, I don't want to say we're using this, but it's it goes back to the WMDs. It's like, it's almost an excuse for Trump to like, hey, you know, like you say, waving the flag, yeah. you know, get patriotism behind it. Make sure like, hey, look, guys, these guys are building WMDs. What are we going to do about it? Uh, it it's a very fascinating read. I'll be sure to link it in the um, in the description of the show. Finally, I wanted to bring up: we record on Tuesdays, so and this show gets posted on a Wednesday. Obviously, yesterday for us currently was Memorial Day, and obviously, I know that you're decorated and you've been in the military. I'm a civilian, so Memorial Day for me is a, is a three day weekend. Um, obviously, I have appreciation for those, and I'm sure you've lost plenty of of brothers throughout the course of your, your time spent. I just wanted to take your thoughts on what Memorial day, like how, how does somebody who is this, as decorated as you are, what, like how do you kind of wrap your head around that? What do you, what do you do? Yeah. Well, I, I wrote an article about it last year and that we uh, republished and, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I, looking at it, you know, as a veteran, I see a lot of my peers like trying to shame America like, you know, it's not just about barbecues, you know, you're supposed to be remembering the fallen and they make it sound like you're supposed to spend Memorial day by yourself in a bar at Applebee's, like crying into your Bud Light. And it's like, no man, like that's not healthy. Um, and you know, for sure it's a time you can reflect on, you know, those who gave their lives for this country, um, those who sacrificed in the war, um, any of our, our wars uh, throughout history. Um, but I disagree with the notion that you're supposed to like sit around and feel bad, um, that you're supposed to be just so sober and, uh, somber, uh, and, um, and just feel bad about it. I, I think that you should go and spend Memorial day having a barbecue with your family. Like there is no reason why you should not do that. Uh, you know, any of our friends, I, I when I think about the people I know who died, in, in combat or, or some succumb to suicide, uh, unfortunately, not a single one of them would be like, yeah, Jack, you need to go and like sit in the right. Applebee's bar and cry to yourself, remembering me. Not a single one of them would, would say that. And 
any one of them would probably give anything to spend another day with their wife and kids. Oh, absolutely. Any of them. So believe me, they would want you to go and have a barbecue with your family and like spend some quality time with your kids or your, your, your mom and dad, aunts and uncles, uh, you know, whoever it is, you know, or, or if it's just with friends and yeah, sure. Have a toast to your friends who died in the war. Remember some of those guys who came before us, but I don't think it's right to, um, just sit around being depressed. Uh, and I don't think it's okay to try to like shame America, uh, over it either, you know? And there are those guys, I mean, be it far for me to tell a veteran how to react to Memorial Day weekend, but I, I'm, I'm in your camp. And, and again, my opinion doesn't matter. I understand that, but it's it, like you, you said it in your answer. You want to remember those, but at the same time, if they were here, I feel like most people would have the same answer. Like, look guys, like, of course we, we miss the people we lost. Yeah. But what, is that what they would want? Like for, for me, Memorial day is a weird weekend for me because I lost my father May 25th, seven years ago. And it always falls around Memorial. And my father wasn't a veteran or anything like that. But it, Memorial Day for you guys are veterans. I remember my father that weekend. Right, so, right. so it's in the same ballpark in the sense that, like, it reminds me of my dad. Right, right. But I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna sit there and sulk. I'll, you know, I'll go to the gravesite. I'll, I'll, I'll pay my respects. I miss you, dad. But then it's time to barbecue and like have fun and tell yeah. stories. Like I'm sure you have countless stories of experiences you have with these guys. And wouldn't you want to sit around if they were there? Wouldn't you want to drink a beer with them and like laugh yeah, about yeah, something yeah. something weird that happened? Some uh, one of the per- one of the people I think about specifically was my uh, old platoon sergeant uh, Jared Van Allist, who he was my platoon sergeant for a while for about two years, um, and uh, I kind of lost track of him after I left Ranger Battalion and went to Special Forces. But Jared went on; he uh, he served as a Delta Force operator, and he was killed in Afghanistan in um, 2010, as I recall. And, um, you know, Jared was a family man, uh, there, and there, there's just no way that he would be like, yeah, Jack, you need to go and like, feel bad for me. Like, there's no way that would even like, like if he thought I was just like sitting around feeling sorry for myself or feeling sorry for him, like I, he would slap me in the mouth. Like there's there's no question in my mind about that. So all this stuff about like social, social shaming and like feeling bad and being depressed. Like, are you doing that for the fallen or are you doing that for you? (laughs) You know, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's, that's kind of where I come from on it. So, I mean, yeah, pour one for your homies, you know, remember, no, I mean, I'm totally serious. I mean, remember those guys, you know, and what they meant to us and, and honor their sacrifice, but dude, go, go live your life, man. That's what they'd want for you. And I think that's how most people should think about it. I mean, you want to remember, but at the same time, you you can't continue to stop your life. No, nor should you. Nor should you. There's no reason for that. Well said. All right. With that, we have Greg Walker coming up. Now, I know most of the listeners were were familiar with Ian's silky smooth vocal cords, which (laughs) that was the first thing I said when I met him in person and over the phone. I said, Ian. You have got the gift, man. You are meant for radio. It's got the voice for radio. He really, yeah. I, I got the face for radio. <laughs> yeah, you and I both. <laughs> now, he said, he was like, look, you work it out with Jack. If you want to do the reads or he wants to do the reads, you had said, hey, man, you can handle them. So I'm going to, I'm taking over for Ian with the reads. If you don't like them, tweet it, Ian. Ian, we miss you. <laughs> like, Dennis is horrible. Da da da. Fine. I, I, that's a cross that I, I'm glad to bear. But in that, 
let me, uh, let me provide my first one. <clears throat> this show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit CrateClub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off your subscription. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion going. So go to CrateClub.us and use the coupon code SOFREP, that's S-O-F-R-E-P, and get 20% off any subscription. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20%. Sign up now. And now... We will bring to you Greg Walker, author, veteran. He's done a countless amount of stuff, and we will talk about David Baez, his articles. He's wrote some stuff on News Rep. Jack and Greg will get into this, and it'll be a great conversation. So with that, here's Greg Walker. Hey, Greg. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks. Hey, appreciate the invitation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, uh, we were talking, discussing a little bit about your work. Um, and, you know, I got into talking a little bit about uh, Dave Baez and, uh, you know, your novel, Stiletto, that fictionalized the story. And, uh, and also Colonel Burris's novel that also fictionalizes it a bit. And I know we, uh, you've written a number of articles that we'd like to get into with you. Um, but I wanted to ask you first if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your military career and you know your journalistic background because you've also written quite a bit of you know special forces history and published a few books and, and, and so on. Sure. I uh, entered the military in 1975 uh, and served both on the active duty side of the house with the Army for 10 years and then completed my career with the special operations reserve components uh, retiring in 2005 uh, after uh, a couple of uh, visits over to Iraq. Uh, writing-wise, uh, I always had a love for writing and uh, for journalism uh, that was cultivated when I was in uh, junior high and high school. And I actually began being published when I was in service at uh, 10th Special Forces Group in 1980. Uh, for uh, Gung Ho magazine. Uh, my, my team sergeant came in and dropped a copy, the first issue, on the uh, team table and said, hey, Walker, uh, you write. Why don't you write for these guys? It's that's not cool. a bad magazine. And so that's, that's how I got started. And uh, I was encouraged along the way by some of the same people Jack has been encouraged by to include uh, uh, Jim Morris. And didn't uh, Gary Linderer uh, edit Gung Ho at one point? No, uh, that was always uh, edited by Jim Schultz. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, began it. Gary uh, started behind the lines. That's right. That's and right. Uh, was uh, founder and editor of that uh, journal. I wrote for Behind the Lines for some time and was for a period of time uh, its uh, editor. And you did some work with uh, Bob Brown at Soldier of Fortune, didn't you? I've uh, I've done a lot of work with Bob uh, on a multitude of the titles uh, that he had, uh, and uh, I still enjoy a very cordial and respectful relationship with him. Uh, I haven't talked to Bob in a few years, but I mean, he is just a super fun guy. To, you know, we were able to sit down and have a beer here in Manhattan one time, and uh, he's just a super interesting guy to talk to. Yeah, Bob is. Uh, Bob is one of those guys that has been on all sides of the uh, the twilight, if you will. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, to be honest with you, my favorite uh, uh, 
image of Bob was when uh, our uh, dear friend Al Mar uh, passed away back in the, uh, the mid-90s. Uh, we had a, quite the uh, uh, memorial out here in Oregon, and Bob flew up for that. And the evening before uh, the ceremony, uh, we were talking, and I, my wife was with me and our, our four kids, and, and we went over to uh, uh, Al's favorite restaurant, Fuddruckers in Lake Oswego, and I had a nice dinner Bob purchased, and then he uh, asked my kids if they wanted ice cream, and they said yes, of course, and he took them up to the ice cream counter, and I sat there watching the, you know, the editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine <laughs> with all that either means or doesn't mean, happily taking orders from four little kids and buying them ice cream cones. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Bob, I, I got the same impression from Bob. He uh, has cultivated this image of himself, of this uh, really hardcore right-wing special forces veteran, which in a, in a sense he is. Um, but he's also a very intelligent, articulate person. Um, you know, he's a college graduate. He's an educated man. Oh, yeah. There's uh, one of Bob's greatest attributes is the ability to uh, be a chameleon and present to whichever audience uh, the face that he wants them to see uh, or that he feels they deserve to see. <laughs> And uh, if people want to know more about that, you know, uh, Bob Brown also has a, a memoir out. I believe it's called I Am Soldier of Fortune, um, since he's the founder and longtime editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine. So I, I've read his book. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. The, the beginning of the book talks about when he was a very, very young Bob Brown um, going and spending his time um, with Cuban rebels. Um, but prior to the, um, the, the revolution in Cuba, Castro's revolution and Bob writes about how he felt, um, betrayed because he thought that they were just social Democrats. But, you know, of course, after everything went down, um, they were clearly communists. And uh, I think Bob felt personally betrayed by that. And I think it also explains why Bob became so hardcore anti-communist in his later years. Yep. That would be a very accurate, uh, account of his, uh, uh, his rendition in that. So, Greg, I, I wanted to get into the story about Baez with you because we had talked a little bit about Dave Baez earlier on, um, and I had tried to figure that out and piece that story together myself in the past, but you were really the one that was able to deliver on that. And I was wondering if you could tell us about who he was and what happened to him down in Central America all those years ago. Dave Baez uh, was a uh, natural-born Nicaraguan. Uh, his dad uh, was uh, involved uh, at the time in the National Guard uh, with uh, what was going on under the uh, President Anastasio Somoza's father, his dad. And long story short, uh, they, uh, he was part of a coup attempt, an assassination attempt, uh, on the old man, and uh, the plot was betrayed, and the uh, the conspirators were were all brutally uh, tortured and executed, and their bodies burned and buried in uh, the, uh, a mass grave, essentially. David was just a little guy. Uh, he grew up with that image and the stories of uh, what had happened to his dad. 
and uh, uh, later on, uh, his parents sent him to the United States uh, so essentially wouldn't get himself in trouble with anti-Somoza demonstrations that were taking place against Anastasio Somoza. And uh, he ended up uh, uh, going into the Army. He became a a naturalized American citizen. Uh, He went to Special Forces uh, and uh, was an exceptional Special Forces uh, communication sergeant. Uh, ended up down assigned to the same unit I was later assigned to, 3rd of the 7th, which was then in Panama. And uh, as you have read in the story, he made a decision to uh, return to Nicaragua after the Sandinista uh, toppling of the Somoja regime and uh, joined the Sandinistas. He was not a communist and he wasn't a Marxist. Uh, he, uh, he saw himself as returning to the homeland uh, to pick up where his dad had left off. And uh, that's how he got back to Nicaragua. And, and I, I got there right after David had, uh, had left and uh, began hearing the stories uh, then. From some of your teammates, I mean, what did they have to say about Dave? Like, what type of soldier was he? There, I have not talked with anyone uh, or heard from anyone that didn't have a tremendous amount of respect for him uh, as a Special Forces soldier. And as a soldier, he was very personable. Uh, he was very professional. Uh, he had a big heart, uh, like most SF guys do. Uh, he pulled his weight. And his teammates in particular, uh, because they were his teammates, and he talked quite a bit about his background and his uh, unhappiness, his hatred for the Samosas, uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, they really saw that side of him. So when he went back to Nicaragua uh, and linked up with the Sandinistas, uh, he had shared with them that that's what he was going to do. And uh, at the time, they it was you know, like, like, wow, hope you know what you're doing, but good luck, man. Yeah, and I, I thought one of the interesting things that came out in your, your work on this was also that um, Dave was highly qualified. I mean, he was not just a special forces soldier, but he spoke three languages at least. He had learned all this clandestine uh, tradecraft and so on um, while he was stationed in Germany. Um, it, it just seems like this guy could be incredibly dangerous. Yeah, that uh, that comes out in the story uh, because the S2 at the battalion, several of the guys, matter of fact, uh, one of whom uh, I quote in the story several times, who was very close to Dave, was also one of the most professional uh, uh, intelligence uh, sergeants that I've, I've ever met and or worked with. And he went to the battalion S2 and said, hey, this guy is getting ready to go back over here and, you know, this could be really scary for us. And the battalion S2 just simply did not pick up on it. And uh, uh, much more importantly, perhaps, the uh, intelligent people at Quarry Heights uh, down in Panama with uh, the Southern Command, uh, they didn't pick up on it either. And they had given him access to literally anything and everything that he wanted to become involved in when he was TDY with them. He did take all of that tradecraft and that knowledge and information uh, over to the Sandinistas, uh, which is one of the reasons he became a commandante. I remember you mentioning that he had access to all of these files at, at Southcom, so he would have had like just an incredibly in-depth knowledge of American operations in Central America at the time. Yep. So the United States military doesn't pick up on on what this guy is up to, or, or well, some people did, but it gets ignored. 
and then he winds up with the Sandinistas. And, and, and can you pick up the story from there? Uh, he uh, had gone uh, back to Nicaragua, to Managua, on a uh, leave, of all things, and approached uh, the senior leadership uh, there uh, with the new Sandinista government, of which he was related to, uh, and uh, said, this is who I am, this is where I come from, this is what I want to do. And uh, they were uh, they were cautious, of course, but his uh, familial uh, history and relations with uh, uh, some of the comandantes, uh, at least three of them, of the nine most important, was such that they gave him the opportunity and gave him the end. So he came on board. He was uh, commissioned as a uh, lieutenant, uh, and he uh, was under wraps and being watched uh, when he was assigned to begin uh, conduct training. He was training. Uh, he trained the first uh, Sandinista paratroop unit and. Uh, also trained up their uh, counterinsurgency units, which were uh, being thrown into the fight against the Contras. Uh, so he made his bones there, and uh, uh, when they became comfortable with him, they you know, he got promoted to captain. He uh, requested to go into the fight against the Contras uh, and fought uh, in one of the most difficult and challenging uh, departments in Nicaragua. Uh, that was uh, attempting to be uh, more or less occupied by Contra forces and uh, made a pretty good name for himself. And with the, to the degree where that when the uh, Honduran incursion uh, uh, came about, he was asked to uh, act as the bodyguard for uh, the uh, Honduran uh, guerrilla commander when they went back across the border. And just for some of our other listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the the lay of the land at the time, it's worth pointing out, I think, that Dave was taking communist rebels across the border into Honduras into combat with Honduran Contras that his former teammates, or maybe even he himself, had trained. Oh, yeah. He was uh, totally committed to the cause. uh, And the thought process and the the bigger picture is that uh, the Contras were meant to and created to destabilize uh, the Sandinista government, part of the all-out war uh, that the Reagan administration uh, was bringing to bear on uh, Central America. Uh, So the Sandinistas, uh, when you look at it from an objective point of view, uh, they were trying to get their revolution and their, quote, new society on the ground and, and built up and infrastructures changed and all that kind of good stuff. And all of a sudden, they've got an armed uh, force uh, coming in from not only Honduras, uh, but from uh, Costa Rica and uh, in some instances across the Gulf of Fonseca from El Salvador. So uh, that being said, and in, in, uh his mind, you know, he bought into, hey, uh, this is my country, this is my homeland, and, uh, you know, I'm here and I'm going to fight for it. And then we get into that fateful column that, that Dave led across the border. Um, and my impression of it was it was almost like um, he's trying to become like a mini Che Guevara um, leading an armed communist column. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and, um, and about Father Carney, because you also wrote a, wrote a whole article about him, and I think his story is equally fascinating. One thing that uh, Dave was, uh, uh, and this is, comes from his teammates, he was very much enthralled with Che Guevara. 
And that's not really unusual. Uh, the Che Guevara is uh, a, a symbol uh, of uh, radical change and revolution throughout Central America, Latin America. And uh, everybody has their own interpretation of why his image is somehow important to them. Uh, so, uh, and uh, Dave's uh, younger brother, uh, who gave a series of interviews in the early 90s on, uh, on his brother to La Prenza in uh, Nicaragua, said the same thing. My, my brother thought, uh, you know, he thought he was going to uh, have the same opportunity that Shea did to, you know, to lead a revolution. So that was essentially part of the motivator on that. Uh, the, uh, the other was it was an extreme test of the Sandinista leadership. Uh, you know, they still got an American Green Beret uh, in their ranks at a high level. And is he a double agent? Is he a triple agent? Uh, so uh, to uh, say, hey, look, do you want to you know, be the bodyguard uh, for the uh, Honduran rebel commander going back over to wage war uh, was a test. If he said, no, not really, then, All right. you know, that's kind of a chalk against him. Uh, but he accepted it and uh, went across the border with the, uh, with the column. And what about Father Carney? Because he was sort of like the religious or spiritual advisor to the column, wasn't he? Carney was, uh, and this is what's interesting about this whole story on the column and about Baez and Carney is that it has been so badly uh, misrepresented, uh, outward uh, lies and self-serving agendas uh, mm-hmm. built uh, on it uh, on, on all sides. Carney was a, uh, a really interesting guy. He was a World War II combat veteran, European theater, uh, became a uh, priest and became a Jesuit. Uh, he spent 18 years in Honduras uh, working with the poor uh, and lived as them. Uh, he was very disdainful of uh, uh, priests who had nice houses or comfortable homes when the people they were supposed to be caring for were living in abject poverty. Uh, he was uh, very outspoken. He was highly intelligent. Uh, and he got himself into some pretty serious trouble down in Honduras to the point where they actually uh, exiled him and sent him back to the United States. He had taken a Honduran citizenship, which they stripped him of. Uh, He was back in the States for a couple of weeks uh, and uh, went through a two-week kind of a reformation of thought at uh, the Jesuit University in Detroit and then was uh, sent back uh, to Central America by them, but this time down to uh, Nicaragua. And he spent uh, uh, a couple of years in Nicaragua working with the poor and becoming even more, quote, radicalized. Uh, His joining the column uh, was something he wrote about in his uh, autobiography, which is a fascinating book. Uh, And he basically said, Hey, uh, I'm going to become a uh, an armed priest. Uh, I'm going to walk my talk, and this this group's going back into Honduras, which I consider my my you know my birth home. And uh, he was actually armed, and uh, was as much a fighter as he was a, uh, a priest. I thought it was fascinating that article you wrote about. Father Carney, and and as you say, it was like he was living out his religious beliefs. Didn't he make a comment like, if you're a real Christian, you have to be a Marxist revolutionary, like these things go hand in hand with one another? 
Well, it actually his quote was, if, if, if you claim to be a Christian, you have to be a revolutionary. Right, right. He didn't uh, pre-qualify it with Marxist or anything else. But uh, uh, he was and had, because he came from the uh, liberation theology uh, school of thought, he uh, was very much uh, invested in Marxism. Uh, and his interpretation of it. Uh, and in that, he only joined a, uh, a previous cadre and a current cadre of Jesuit priests who uh, made liberation theology uh, their doctrine. So then what happened when the column did cross the border? I mean, I, I remember reading your article and your research on this, and I mean, it sounded like it was ill-planned and because of that, ill-fated. It was not necessarily ill-planned because they had cells in Honduras that were ready to receive them. They were going to set up uh, three or four operational fronts. Uh, the, in my opinion, uh, with the research that was done, the guerrilla commander, uh, Dr. Reyes Mena, uh, who was a hardcore communist uh, Marxist uh, and had participated in uh, uh, several different insurgencies, uh, to include the insurgency over in El Salvador prior to uh, 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 creating the column. He, he, his ego just got way out in front of him, uh, and he made some real blunders uh, as to movement, distances, terrain, uh, where he was going to base out of the Sandinista command and said, hey, we, we really think you should you know, create your first base on our side of the border and, uh, you know, launch out from there and just kind of start taking little baby steps and getting established. Uh, and he determined that, uh, nope, we're going to go right in and we're going to create uh, create our revolution much in the doctrine of uh, uh, Shays Foucault theory as we go. And that uh, that just totally unraveled. And it was, I mean, this is incredibly difficult terrain as well. Oh, it's the worst. It's the absolute worst. Uh, talking to uh, some American uh, retired uh, Special Forces uh, advisors that have been down in that area, uh, it's just the worst. And it took a huge toll on the uh, the initial column. They started to see uh, extreme fatigue. Uh, they ran out of food. Uh, the... Uh, uh, desertions began, and once the desertions began, uh, the Hondurans uh, began to learn, the military and the police started to learn of the presence of the column, and, and then it was a matter of just the clock ticking down. And then how did it all come to a close for Father Carney and, and Dave and, and uh, Dr. Reyes? They, uh, uh, they got into essentially a series of running gun battles. Uh, the information that was being provided by the deserters was very concise, very explicit. Uh, there was no base for the revolution among uh, the general populace. So whenever the general populace heard something or saw saw the guerrillas come into some of the very small little villages that they were trying to travel around uh, to get food, water, news, that kind of a thing, they reported it you know, almost right away. So uh, the Honduran military immediately launched a uh, very aggressive counterinsurgency campaign. Uh, the United States, uh, as uh, we share in the story, uh, got behind it 100 percent. And uh, we, uh, under the guise of our humanitarian assistance uh, presence, uh, sent the uh, 2nd and 75th Ranger Battalion down there to assist the Honduran Special Forces 
uh, to uh, corral up the column. And they literally, uh, which is the first time I've ever heard of the Ranger Battalion used in a humanitarian role, by the way, pretty pretty interesting. They pretty much uh, broke them down and uh, chased them to the ground. And Reyes, uh, Dave Baez, and Father Carney were uh, captured. Uh, they were taken to a uh, uh, American-built and supplied uh, clandestine airstrip uh, where the Contras were uh, basing out of, uh, interrogated. And uh, they, along with, I think it was some 30 other guerrillas that had been captured, uh, were, uh, were all executed. Do you think the United States government uh, down there knew that they had American citizens captive? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Bring that out in the story. Yeah. It was, it was very much, uh, uh, very much known. And uh, the interesting thing about it uh, was, and this is something people really don't understand, uh, because it's gone on for time immemorial, Carney had renounced his United States citizenship, but it had never actually been taken from him. Right. Uh, when he went back down to Nicaragua, he went back down on a Catholic church pass. Uh, which allowed him, uh, because he was doing clerical work, uh, to uh, get another U.S. passport. Uh, so Carney was really very much looked at uh, by State Department as not really a citizen anymore. And here you are involved in doing what you're doing. Uh, so he was on his own, and Baez had not renounced his citizenship, but Baez had gone over to the other side uh, doing the damage that he had been doing. Uh, so again, uh, he was on his own. And uh, so the determination that for the Hondurans, hey, this is your internal problem. You know, you take care of it the way you want to take care of it. And they did. So you think our government was kind of like turning a blind eye to it, like, uh, yeah, we don't really want to know what, how this is going to play out. I don't think it was a blind eye at all. I think it was a very wide open both eyes. Really? Uh, this was all out war uh, throughout El Salvador and Honduras and Nicaragua, threatening uh, Costa Rica. That's what folks really don't grasp about our wars in Central America. So uh, they, you know, both eyes open. Hey, they knew that they knew these guys were a problem. They knew the damage that they were doing. And I think that a nice uh, backdrop to it is. Uh, the State Department uh, sent the same message directly to uh, Micah Chanis and uh, his uh, very small American team that was supporting Anastasio Somoza uh, in 77, 78. Uh, uh, and in 78, of course, Mike and uh, Chuck and Bobby were uh, were killed along with Ivan Allegret, uh down there. Uh, they told him, hey, you guys are way outside the boundaries. We can't make you come home. We can't make you stop. But uh, we can tell you right now, we're not going to help you if bad things happen to you. And that's the in-State Department cables that I have. It was just a continuation of a long-held policy. We're going to have to have you back on another time to talk about Michael Achanis, um, because I know we, we had talked about before how you're working on a biography about him, right? Yeah, six years in uh, in research. Un- wow. Unbelievable story. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that. That's that's going to be a whole other podcast. Then, as I recall from, from reading your work, the remains of Father Carney and Dave Baez were loaded onto a helicopter and thrown out over the jungle. And have to this day, they, they haven't been recovered, right? No, it was a very deliberate message sent to the Sandinistas by the Honduran government. They loaded all of the bodies... Uh, of those that were executed, 
at El Aguacate uh, Air Base on um, two helicopters. They flew them back over the border into Nicaragua, and they tossed them out into the uh, triple canopy jungle below. And the message that was sent, uh, because, of course, they, you know, through the back channels, let them know, hey, we, we just sent your boys back, uh, was you come across our border like this again, and, you know, this is what awaits you. The Hondurans were particularly good at protecting their country. There was never an insurgency that got off the ground in Honduras because of their approach. I remember uh, I've talked to Jim West about it many times, uh, you know, when he was down there training uh, their counterterrorism unit at one point. But uh, maybe we, I'm, we'll have to have him on the show again sometime to talk about his experiences down there in Honduras. But uh, they're all very interesting. To that say would the, be fun. To say the least. Smokey yeah. is Smokey is incredible. When we first got talking, Greg, I uh, I asked Jim because I always you know asked Jim. I was like, Hey, do you know this guy? Do you know that guy? And he was like, Oh yeah, Greg Walker. And he vouched for you. He said, Yeah, Greg's a really good guy. Very analytical person. He's one of my favorites. He's a real legend of special forces. He's going on to do really positive and incredible uh, things. So. I'll give him my best. Yeah, I, I will. He's actually having um, some shoulder surgery. He uh, actually fell down on a work site and broke his shoulder. So they're they're putting they're putting Jim uh, back together again. But he'll be okay. There you go. Yeah, again is the right word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, well, uh, I really appreciate you walking us through that story and cutting through some of the BS that has been floated out there over the years about this whole this whole saga about. Dave Baez. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about some of your other work also, because uh, you've written quite a bit about soldier suicide and some other things that are going on with our force right now. And just pointing out like, hey, we, we got some problems. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful to news reps for being the format and form that it is uh, uh, in that respect. I uh, spent 10 years uh, working with our most seriously injured, wounded, and ill service members and veterans in a non-clinical role, starting with the SOCOM Care Coalition. Uh, I worked with uh, traumatic amputation, serious burn victims, PTSD, military sexual trauma, uh, terminal illness such as cancer, uh, and uh, in many cases, a you know, uh, uh, wounded that are suffering from multiple diagnoses across the board. And then in the private sector with some really good inpatient programs uh, for uh, behavioral health and substance dependency. And the news rep forum has really allowed for a consistent series on the issues facing our conventional and our soft people regarding behavioral health and substance abuse and suicide uh, to uh, come out and stay out there uh, where it can be seen and heard. Starting to get some really, they're starting to take notice in some certain areas that are tracking on the series. And your, I mean, I don't know if I would say your area of expertise, but your area of familiarity is uh, up at Fort Lewis. Yeah, I've, uh, my, uh, my AOR, if you will, uh, beginning in 2009, uh, when I uh, came out of the Chapter 31 program here in Portland and finished up uh, some really intensive behavioral health work, I, I got uh, diagnosed with chronic combat PTSD in 2005 and uh, made the decision to go after my new normal uh, with as much energy and commitment as I went after my uh, tab. I've worked uh, uh, the Alaska, Hawaii, Japan, Korea, uh, Northern California, Montana, 
uh, Washington and Oregon military bases and VAs for the last 10 years. So I'm pretty familiar with, you know, how it all works, how it all doesn't work. Based on uh, on your research, why do we have such an issue with soldier suicide, and what do you think we can do? Maybe maybe we, you know, as in a country, or um, or more specifically, the army, or even a specific unit. What can we do to better address it? Wow, the million dollar question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I just finished a pretty significant article uh, addressing the uh, uh, epidemic of recent suicides at the Fort Wainwright, Alaska. I'm from Fairbanks, Alaska, so it's a subject near and dear to my heart. Uh, and the, uh, the brigade uh, that came to our attention, which you'll see in the story, was incredibly responsive and helpful. Uh, and uh, uh, has been doing some really good things, which appear in the story as to education and peer support groups being set up and things like that. Uh, so internally, whether it's, you know, regardless of service, uh, the units really uh, have a great part in uh, breaking down the stigma of behavioral health uh, and the, uh, the woundings of war that uh, we call invisible. Uh, because they're internal uh, and they uh, are attached to not only our souls but our spirits as well as our minds. Community, communities getting involved. That's really the key. The uh, the community, wherever you may be, let's take Fairbanks for an example. Uh, if the community gets involved and provides resources and partners with the military and the military comes out of its shell and partners with the uh, civilian resources, uh, you're going to mitigate the, uh, not necessarily the causes, but you're going to mitigate the disastrous results when you have either attempted suicide or suicide. And quite frankly, service members have to take responsibility for themselves. We're the first ones to know when we're out of kilter. We, we know when our knee hurts. Uh, we know when uh, we're having uh, trouble with our vision. We know when we've, you know, broken an ankle. Uh, we also know when something is not right inside. And uh, the climate now is so much better than it was for our Vietnam veterans and and even 10 years ago in terms of being able to go in and sit down and say, look, I really, really need to talk to somebody. I need some help. And uh, that is, you know, that is how we... That's how we confront uh, what we're seeing today. Are there any particular programs uh, in the military um, that you think are particularly effective? There are some and have been some really good programs for substance and behavioral health. And as the series uh, that I've been writing uh, has shown, sadly, these programs have been gutted in many, many instances. The military has a real shortage of both substance abuse therapists and behavioral health therapists. And no, they're not the same. They're entirely two different treatment tracks and certification and experience tracks. Uh, the, uh, the services are way, way short of these folks. Uh, but the caseloads have not dropped uh, as they expected they were going to back in 2012, 2013. They've remained the same and in some uh, instances have actually increased. The senior leadership, in my opinion, from the instances we've looked at, has just basically taken a knee to the uh, field commanders and, hey, anything you want to do with this soldier, you know, we'll do it. We'll sign off on it. Uh, basically thrown in the towel in terms of advocating 
on the many fronts that they could and should be for, uh, for the individual soldier. Matter of fact, uh, the case of Matthew Brown uh, in the first uh, two installments uh, were behavioral health up at Fort Lewis at Madigan Army Hospital absolutely knowingly condemned him to death uh, by uh, stepping back and letting a, a JAG officer at a brigade uh, go ahead and court-martial him. And he did exactly what he told him he was going to do, and that's on record. You know, he retrieved his pistol from uh, a friend he'd left it with before he went inpatient and uh, returned to his quarters and shot himself. So, you know, there's some real problems with our, our military behavioral health people that are just simply being masked or uh, misdirected. I just saw where uh, the uh, of, uh, the army has said, "Hey, we're going to let uh, we're going to let soldiers go in the private sector uh, without telling their commanders or anybody else they're going in for care and treatment for you know drug and substance abuse problems, uh, uh, so that there's no you know no stigma, no this that, and the other." Well, in reality, what they're saying is uh, we, we're, so, we're so screwed up in this area right now and it's costing us so much money and our behavioral health and substance people are bailing as fast as they can because we're making totally unreasonable demands upon them uh, for uh, production and uh, reports and this uh, that we're just going to throw it to the private sector. Uh, it's a really interesting little dodge uh, to throw in the towel. And at the same time, in another story, they just came out and said that they're cutting over 17,000 medical positions in the Army, uh, doctors, nurses, technicians, therapists, uh, basically uh, uh, because they're going to come up with a new paradigm for Army medical care. <laughs> so as you can see, it's a pretty screwed up deal across the board. And that's why we have the problems we have with soldier suicide at, at, at the extreme far end, of course. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, if, if that, all of that happening, you can see the writing on the wall that the problem's just going to continue to get worse. And I hope things have gotten better at the unit level uh, a little bit as you talk about. Um, I have a friend or I had a friend, I won't mention his name here, but I went through the Q course with him and he was stationed at Fort Lewis. And, um, you know, he had his personal life blow up on him. Um, you know, wife took the kids and left. And he said, I, or I'm sorry, the wife left him with the kids and left. And um, he told his unit, he said, I can't deploy. I'm a, I'm a single dad now. And they fired him from his ODA and called him a coward. Uh, so he shot himself. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. no, no wonder why this stuff is happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so out of control. I've, I've worked with first group soldiers and commands for 10 years uh, with some pretty serious cases. And I have no doubt that what you just uh, recounted uh, took place. I, I saw guys that were, you know, really good special forces soldiers uh, and uh, mid-level NCO and above, uh, in some cases, officers uh, that were just denigrated, uh, just really put the task uh, by uh, individual commands and commanders and sergeant majors and uh, that, and uh, very nearly they came close to taking their own lives or did take their own lives. Mike Matanudo was a prime example of that, covered in the first uh, two uh, installments. And, you know, uh, again, overall, the big picture is uh, we weren't set up to fight for uh, ever, and we're going on 18, 18 and a half years now. 
And uh, when you do that, of course, uh, people's mindsets and their feelings and their their sense of responsibility to what and to who changes. And that's why we see uh, what we do coming out of some of these units and doing what they're doing to the soldiers. And all of this, of course, when the guys and gals get out and become veterans, about five years ago, the military DOD said, hey, we're going to partner with the VA because the VA is where all of our our troops that are getting out uh, or being discharged or separated from service are going to go to. So we want to make sure that we're working in sync with them. Well, what they were really saying was, hey, we're going to just throw all of this on the VA so we can cut our losses and cut our, our having to provide the kinds of services and specialists that are needed to uh, maintain and sustain uh, soldier health. And that's exactly what has happened. So... It's a pretty vicious cycle. It makes me angry to hear that, that you have all these different parties who are basically deferring um, and don't want to take responsibility for, you know, honestly, the mess that, that the Army leaves in its wake a lot of times. Well, the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines and yeah. the Coast Guard, uh, you know, all, all of them are of this uh, of mindset in general. You, you know, you, you do have some just incredible frontline therapists and psychologists and, and uh, psychiatrists and and uh, substance abuse uh, experts who are and have worked themselves near to death and into ill health. I know one in particular who has had to medically retire because uh, it was just impossible for that person to continue to fight uh, what has been going on uh, over the last several years uh, in terms of do as we do and not as we say. And they're, you know, they're worn out and they're leaving. And so that's leaving us with, you know, a lack of experience uh, as well as it's, uh, you know, bringing in new new people that don't have the experience and they're going to be inculcated with a philosophy and a doctrine that is not helpful. Uh, and it's also leaving us with the ash and trash that comes in with the uh, psychiatric behavioral health and substance uh, staffs. You know, I'm just here to get my paycheck, get my retirement, and, you know, anything that you want me to do or say, that's what I'm going to do or say. And a lot of those folks, unfortunately, are running the roost right now. I'd also like to provide some helpful information to people who are listening to this. And I, I was wondering if you have any advice. If there is a soldier out there or a veteran out there who's having suicidal thoughts or has a friend of theirs who is co- contemplating this and has made baby, shown some warning signs, what kind of advice would you give to them? Recognize uh, that those signals that are given when there are signals given, most of us that are close to somebody uh, or have some kind of a relationship that's positive with them will pick up on things that they say or how they say it. We'll notice if they are beginning to isolate or are isolating themselves. They're not participating in the activities with us that they you know, used to. Watch what they put on the internet and on social media and what they live stream. Uh, in the preparation of the story I just uh, completed for news rep, a soldier up at Fort Wainwright was live streaming his uh, suicidal ideation and intent and one of his buddies saw it and immediately did an intervention, and then they they got uh, you know they got in there and they plucked him to uh, at least temporary safety. Uh, so watch what folks are saying on media, what they say in texts, those kinds of things. The most important thing I think, and those that I respect that are professionals and clinicians in the field, listen. Ask somebody, how are you today? How are you doing? 
And uh, oftentimes that's uh, enough uh, for somebody to start to open up and share with you, I ain't doing that good. And then you can you can explore from there. It's just a matter. And matter of fact, the brigade commander up at Wainwright gave us a marvelous statement, which is I was really impressed with, where he, uh, to paraphrase him, he said, "Hey, uh, you know, I, I try to make sure that the chain of command knows to let our soldiers know and to teach and train our soldiers. We got to take care of each other. And you guys are the front line." When it comes, you guys know each other the best. I don't. My job is to provide, you know, the resources and the response and the right attitude to do interventions and preventions and help. But, you know, we have to, you know, we got to take care of the guy or gal on the right and the left and, you know, and on our six. And that's, that's what we need to do as a community. We do that, we'll start saving lives. Uh, we'll mitigate the crisis. And that's what's important. Yeah, I was thinking about it the other day for some reason. And, you know, we talk a lot about veterans helping veterans, which is very important. And as you were pointing out just there, I mean, it's those team leaders and squad leaders and platoon sergeants who are going to see it before, you know, some battalion commander does. But at the same time, I'd offer that, you know, as veterans, we can't necessarily treat other veterans, including our friends. They have to actually go in and receive some mental health treatment from a professional. And so I, I would just offer that as well. Yeah, we, unless you're, and even if you are, because so many veterans, thankfully, uh, are, uh, over the last uh, 10 years, the last decade have really gotten into uh, the medical field and behavioral health field and become therapists and clinicians and, and that. And that's, uh, that's such a welcome addition to the, uh, that particular population because they get it, you know. Uh, in general. So, yeah, if you have somebody that's in that uh, position and, you know, you know, you're a close friend, there's so many things out there. You jump to the Internet, uh, you can contact the uh, suicide prevention team up at your local VA or at your CBOC and let them know, well, I got somebody who's in trouble. Uh, how do I go about getting them to you? Wounded Warrior Program, uh, which I'm a big fan of uh, now that they've had the change of leadership. Uh, they have uh, some incredibly good programs, combat stress programs, where they uh, uh, financially provide uh, counselors that are trained for this kind of a thing in the private sector to uh, conduct counseling and intervention. And then they have a warrior care network where they can actually bring someone who's enrolled in the program in for uh, either intensive outpatient or in uh, some cases inpatient therapy. I worked a lot with the Warrior Program uh, in doing just that, primarily uh, uh, homeless uh, post 9-11 veterans that were so catastrophic that the VA couldn't uh, couldn't bring them in to wow. either a inpatient program for behavioral health or substance abuse until they were stabilized. And so the Wounded Warrior Program would pick up the bill right up front, which is about $35,000 a shot wow. uh, for a 28-day stay uh, in a good private uh, sector uh, program, which they vet, and, uh, and then move them into intensive outpatient and and that phenomenal program. Uh, I wish they would do more advertising about uh, about that than they do with you know uh, their mainstay of you know prosthetics and things like that. You just got to have a little a little short list and say, look, I can help you get the help if this, if help is what you want, and uh, you can make it happen. We're all interconnected. Greg, thank you so much for uh, you know sharing this information with us today. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to cover before we get going? Oh, uh, I think it is so important 
having been there myself and uh, uh, discovered and worked towards my what I call a new normal, and that is this is part of, historically of what goes on with warriors, mm-hmm. and we would never knowingly go up to a amputee wearing a prosthetic that perhaps we and say, geez, why, why can't you be like you were before you lost your leg? Or someone who's been blinded. Gee, I wish you could be more like you were when, before you lost your eyesight. We never do that. So we're untangling the uh, the stigma and the prejudice about saying, you know, gee, I wish you, you know, I wish you were like you were before you went on multiple tours or one big tour where you saw some terrible things and you know, now you're having mental health issues. Body, spirit, mind, it all works together. And when one is hurt or broken, the other two or other one doesn't work that well. Uh, so really embracing, uh, you know, the fact that it is a uh, one big circle. And it's so important. The guys and gals that are coming back from this and are, are, are finding their new normals and reengaging in life and are becoming great parents again, they're, they're entering into professions that you would never expect that they would be able to enter into. I was blessed with that as well as a number of uh, the people I met at the SOCOM Care Coalition. It's possible to come back and to be better. And that's what our goal and our objective uh, should be. That's an awesome point, Greg. Um, and and I, I would say the same thing is, is that going in and getting treatment works. Like I have seen guys who um, you can visibly see PTSD in their face. Like they just look drained and exhausted. And then they go and get treatment. And when they come back, it's like literally they're getting their lives back. Like they're a new man. It's a new person. So if there are any people out there listening to this who are dealing with those issues right now, I I hope that they'll listen to what you're saying and and maybe listen to what I'm saying and understand that like you can get better. Like you can come back from that. Yeah, you can. And we have, uh, I may do an article on this. We have been uh, keeping uh, operators from uh, our soft units in the game and redeploying them to combat who are diagnosed with combat PTSD uh, because they've taken advantage of the uh, procedures and systems uh, and processes in service uh, to address that. And uh, quite frankly, they're considered to be too, there's too much of an investment in them just to put them out. And uh, that's why you have your combat stress teams, your satellite uh, ganglion block, was, uh, which is a whole new uh, uh, process for uh, treatment. Uh, so we're, we're putting people right back into the fray, uh, and uh, and they're doing you know they're doing good work again. I would recommend to anybody that's interested that they read Dr. Edward Tick's book. War and the Soul, uh, and then his follow-on book, Warriors Return. We use those at the SOCOM Care Coalition uh, for our wounded. Uh, Dr. Tick has been doing work with PTSD veterans, uh, uh, Vietnam generation forward for over 30 years. He's the most incredible, humble, kind, but insightful uh, man on this subject, as well as his wife, Kate. And both of his books are written uh, at uh, the layman's level, so they're very understandable. Mission 22 uses them. Uh, Sogon Care Coalition was using them. Uh, I recommend either of those two books. Uh, it, it'll really give you a, a good foundation for traction and to say, wow, this isn't just me. This goes, this goes all the way back to the Greeks and, and on the Romans and the Spartans and everybody else. Really, really good tool. 
That's great, Greg. Thanks for sharing that with us. And um, I think we're going to have to have you on again. Uh, I know there's many, many more topics that you and I can get into. And uh, <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll wait for you to publish a few more articles, and uh, we'll have you back on and discuss that. That'd be great. I appreciate that. It's a wonderful forum. Yeah, anytime, Greg. Thank you. Any final thoughts? I'm just going to put a plug in for NewsRep. Uh, I've been <laughs> writing you. for a long time, and mostly <laughs> for print media. And I am absolutely delighted at... Uh, news rep uh, being uh, almost real time and then uh, uh, having the opportunity to keep things out there that are different authors that are important and keep them in the uh, spotlight. But I think the thing I like the most about it is that uh, we can uh, embed articles and that for the reader to go, oh, okay, I can go right to this and see where that came from yeah. and where this was said. And then the real-time exchange between authors and the author's reader. Uh, it's fascinating to be able to you know, see somebody's comment or letter to the editor, yeah. if you will, and then be able to send a note back. Just really a great job, a really good thought process in you know, 21st century uh, professional media. Well, thanks for working with us, Greg. I mean, it's been a pleasure, and I really think you're doing some uh, important and illuminating work. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm just a cog in the wheel, brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, aren't we all? Well, all right, Greg, thank you so much again for uh, joining us today, and um, we'll have to have you back on again real soon. Hey, you guys have a tremendous uh, week, and uh, Dale Presso Lieber. All right, you too, Greg. Thank you. That was good. Yeah, good interview. Whew. I mean, it, heavy topic. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, on the first end, you had the, the Baez stuff, yeah, which is... Yeah fascinating and it's all i mean we've we've spoke off air about it um but then you know you get into mental health and it's nothing to joke about on any level and it's just it's such a topic that needs to be discussed and like you had asked them what can we do to help at the end and i think the main take would just ask questions yeah yeah and i mean greg has been intimately involved um in that stuff as he mentioned for quite a while um you know, I know I've said on here before, my, uh, I had one of my teammates on my ODA kill himself a while back after he, he, we were both out of the Army at the point. Um, but it's just horrible stuff. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's not my fault and it's nobody else's fault that this guy killed himself. I mean, he, he made a decision. But at the same time, I had lost track of him for a while. And I, I, I wish, you know, of course, in retrospect... Like maybe I should have been a bit more involved. Right. Um, you know, that's, a, that's with hindsight, of course, you know, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but regardless of that, I mean, keep an eye on your buddies, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, try to be aware of some of those signs, even something, I mean, it, especially in today's world, like just send them a text. Yeah. Yeah. Just, Hey, what's up, man? Thinking about you. Like, how's everything going? Something that simple. And, you know, maybe he opens up, maybe he doesn't, but you, you can't figure it out unless unless you make an attempt. I've had those calls a few times talking somebody off the ledge, and, and I'm I'm sure it's yeah. it, it's an uncomfortable feeling, but it's better than the alternative for sure. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, reach out and try and help. Like I mean, Greg, plenty of insight there. Yeah, and I mean, plenty of resources. He he mentions there also to get some for people to get some help. Um, so yeah, that's a really great interview and we'll have him on again, you know, as he, he's working on other articles, I know what some of them are about and we'll have him on again and his, uh, biography of Michael Ashanis or Akanis, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing his name right, is another one of those interesting, um, 
mysteries. He was a, that guy was a special forces soldier as well. And he died under somewhat mysterious circumstances down in Central America. His plane either blew up or crashed. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to, we'll get into it with Greg and he'll, he'll, he'll lay the whole story on us, but that's a whole other subject right there that we'll get into another time. I find that stuff fascinating. The, uh, not quite a conspiracy theory, but what what really happened? Well, yeah. there, there are conspiracy theories swirling around all that kind of stuff, um, but but Greg will get to the facts of it, um, and, and that'll be very interesting. Yeah, and he writes great articles, obviously. Yeah. I mean, news rep wouldn't add him if, if they didn't think his, his work was quality. Uh, he is uh, he's the kind of guy that like I aspire to. You know, he's been doing this longer than I have. High praise. And he just does terrific work. So we want to thank Greg for joining us. Uh, at the end, notice how he plugged news rep. <laughs> and in that vein, I'm about to do the same. Fellow listeners, if you guys aren't signed up for news rep, first off, what are you doing? Like, get with it. <laughs> it's simple. It's thenewsrep.com. You've got to get on board. There's expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard of, like the man sitting to my left, Jack Murphy. You got Stavros. I'm not even going to attempt to do his last name. He <laughs> writes great stuff. Long Greek last name. Yeah, very long in Greek. Uh, Greg Walker, we just we just spoke with him for you know almost an hour, maybe more. Uh, he he writes great articles. Be sure to check them out. There's unlimited access to NewsRep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad free for members. There's a trial offer up right now where you get four weeks for only one dollar ninety nine cents. Be sure to sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's the news rep. Com. Be sure to check out our crate club. It's a club for men by men of gear head picked by special operations veterans. All tier crates are available at crateclub.us. And right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all soft rep radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available. And we're not exactly sure how long the promotion is going to last. So you better be sure to get on it right now. That's crateclub.us. The coupon code is softrep. For 20% off all your subscription for all crates, sign up today. Also, as a reminder for you listeners, now is the time to sign up for Spec Ops Channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operation Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. By the way, if you're not aware, we have our own SoftRep radio app that you can download for free on either iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com where you can see all our full archive of shows like the one we just had today with Greg Walker. As always, keep up with us on social media at SoftRep Radio as well. And that was my first foray into the live reads. Hopefully uh, you guys won't notice the difference between Ian and I. <laughs> if you need him, one 900 Scotto. Yeah, he claims he's in Arizona. one 900 Scotto. I don't think that's true. S-C-O-T-T-O, one 900 Scotto. He he would say he was upset that you were trying to push for him into getting into male prostitution. I think he enjoyed Whatever it. Whatever pays the bills, bro. And in my mind, he's servicing those Upper East Side wives right now. 
I mean, there's a market. There is a market. I told him there's a market. And that's really what he's doing. He says he says he's climbing rocks in Sedona. I, I think I'm in quote unquote Arizona. Yeah. yeah okay, bro. Whatever. <laughs> um. Obviously, great interview with Greg Walker. I don't know what else you'd like to discuss. That was. I know you were excited. We we had talked off air about the bias stuff. Um, you guys talked at end about that. That that's just a fascinating. That is a weird story, isn't it? And yeah. absolutely. And I like I I told you off air. I'm not as well ver- uh, as Ian. Let alone you. You go on. <laughs> you go on deep dives. So I'm excited to join the show. One because it's a great it's a great program and two because i'm absolutely going to learn more stuff about little things i mean not little things but stories like this that maybe uh, fans of the show aren't aware or definitely people like myself who just you know know the military on very face value to start yeah yeah you will hear some weird things on this podcast for sure and i think that's one of the things that kind of sets us apart um there are a lot of military podcasts out there but a lot of them are kind of like on a surface level um and, and I, I i mean honestly i don't listen to too many other podcasts to tell you the truth but i mean i feel like there's a lot of stuff out there that's kind of like yeah support the troops and this and that and i mean we support the troops too but also we want to dig a little bit beneath the surface yeah, and, and kind of dig up some of these interesting stories um so i mean i think this podcast is a little more niche perhaps um, than, than some of the other stuff out there, which is great because you know you can if if you're a fan of the military in general, there there are the other podcasts for that, and then also if you want to delve deep into topics, you know, mental mental health like like Greg and you just discussed, it, it's a serious issue and, and it's heavy and yeah, you yeah. know, it's not just you know, hey, we got we got to help the troops. Okay, everybody can say that. How can we do yeah. that? What what are steps we can take? And not not too many people can talk about it the way you know Greg can either, um, with the kind of um, compassion as well as credibility that that he has on this. Absolutely, subject. he uh, the article the article on News Rep. I mean, be sure to check it out. It's it's yeah, it's almost like a four part series. He covers you know three different men, um, and then he, like an overall piece about it. And it, it, it's tragic. You know, you don't want anybody to to die from suicide. Yeah, yeah, it's it's avoidable. Um, uh, so I know I got you hard at work scheduling guests, um, and I know some of them you got laid on. I'm pretty excited about some people I've been trying to actually get to come on for a while now. Um, yeah, there, there's one. Name, I mean, I don't. We don't. We don't do spoilers, right? I don't want to. I'm not you, giving away. Usually anybody. not. Well, this one we talked about before. Um, Jeff Kirkham wanted to come on, and, and we'll have our, our epic uh, Kalashnikov discussion that's coming up. I am excited for that. I mean, at, at the very least, I can appreciate AK-47s. <laughs> interesting. Again, interesting histories there, for, for sure. sure. For sure. And then there's another one. I don't know if you want to mention his name, um, but you you were excited for him. You, you said you've been trying to get him for a while. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll hold off okay. on that until, we, until the date. But that's coming up, what, next week, right? Next Thursday, I believe. Next Thursday. So, yeah, we're going to have some really cool stuff. And as I said, we're a little bit of a niche podcast in that sense that we get the, we're getting those little, uh, um, I don't necessarily want to say, either stories that have not been written before or are, are fairly obscure and maybe a lot of our audience has never heard of before. So we're going we're gonna to dig beneath the surface. But that's a good thing, you know. Yeah. Always be learning. Yeah. Uh, and with that, I think we, you know. All right. First episode under my belt solo. Uh, can't thank Ian enough. I, I really want to get that on record. He's 
He probably listened to the first 10 minutes and he might listen to the last 10 to make sure that you don't fuck it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I want to be sure to credit him. I can't thank Ian enough. He was instrumental in, in getting me here and teaching me the ropes. And hopefully it's a fairly seamless tradition. I'm not, I, I'm not going to have the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The chemistry right off the bat that, that <laughs> you and Ian had, but uh, I, Ian worked with you, what, seven years? Yeah, about. I think you and I can get there in about half a year. <laughs> we'll do some beard docking after this. <laughs> oh, man, you guys are missing out because yeah. it's just a podcast. The the visuals here, we are going <laughs> to. Jack and I are going to get along swimmingly. <laughs> so uh, thank you guys for listening as always. Soft Rep Radio. Be sure. Uh, Thursday, we have one or two guys that I can lock in. I don't want to. I don't want to know yet because I'm going to try and mix some stuff around. Uh, But be sure to listen. Leave us a review. Thank you guys for listening as always. And we will see you Thursday. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you again then. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.